0: Morning, Church family. In 1943, an American psychologist named Abraham Maslow presented a theory in the Psychological Review. He wrote an essay called A Theory on Human Motivation. And in this essay, he posits a theory that humans have different needs that can be delineated by a hierarchy. It's A theory called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You might have encountered it in your schooling, you might have encountered it in your workplace, We still talk about it a decent bit, even though it was written nearly 80 years ago now. And basically what this theory is, is that we have different tiers of needs, some that have more primacy, some that are more secondary. So at the basis level of our needs are our physiological needs. We have hunger and thirst and sleep and shelter and clothing, things that like if you didn't have you would die, those kind of things, that's at the base. And then on top of those are safety needs, safety needs like I need to have a good health track record or I need emotional security or financial security. On top of that, we have social and love needs, our need for companionship, for friendship, for family, for intimacy. And on top of that, we have our esteem needs. This one's kind of interesting. We have a need to to, to have self-respect and to be respected by those around us. And then at the very top of the pyramid, as it was originally presented, there is self-actualization needs. Now, self-actualization needs are pretty abstract in terms of whether or not they're actually human needs. Things like cognitive needs, like the need to learn something new, or curiosity in general, or the need to explore something or be creative, or aesthetic needs, the need to see something beautiful or experience something pleasurable, or even spiritual needs, the need for religion or ritual. And this was Maslow's original theory, putting forth that, that these things were subordinated to one another, Now the theory has been hotly debated, has been hotly debated in psychological scholarship since it was released. It's been restructured, reorganized. Some of the pyramids have like eight tiers rather than the five that Maslow originally presented. Originally in the uh, in the original pyramid, sex was a physiological need rather than a social one. But they decided to move it up to being a social one because you don't really die if you're celibate, um, like you do if you're starving. (laughs) And so. uh, the theory became more and more controversial among psychological scholarship. However, it has retained a lot of power and popular discussion and prominence and popular discussion. A lot of us already know about it because we still talk about it in educational places and workplaces. And it's because it represents some experience of our reality to us. We have some experience that, yeah, certain needs are more urgent than others. Certain needs are more primal than others. For example, if you are extremely hungry, you are less likely to be considerate of those around you. That's where we get get the term hangry from, right? Or if you're not satisfying your social and love needs, like you're in a fight with your best friend, you're considerably less likely to be spending your time focused on creative endeavors because your social need is not being satisfied by this discord that you have with your friend. So it's an interesting theory. It's one that has some level of reality and weight to us, uh, to it for us. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, could we apply this theory to the church? Could we come up with needs that the church has that could be delineated into different tiers, different hierarchies, things that are more primary, things that are more secondary? So as I started to think about this, I started thinking, what are the needs of the church? If you think through popular discussion, one that might come up, pretty quickly is sexual ethic and fidelity. We know too many stories about church leaders who have been unfaithful to their spouses, or even more stories about church leaders who have bent their sexual ethic to the way of the world at the sa- at, uh, at the uh, cost of scriptural fidelity. So that brings up another need that the church likely has is doctrinal fidelity. Do we hold the scriptures as what teaches total truth, or will we allow ourselves to be bent by the society's ways and whims, right? In the 20th century, it was really popular among the Christian scholars to deny the existence of hell for some reason. You know, in our, in our current day and age, we have things like the prosperity gospel that are propagating throughout America. Are we willing to stick to the scriptures as the sole place where we can find truth about who God is? I'd argue that both of these things are incredibly great needs that the church has, but neither of them is the most foundational the most foundational need that we have as a church is to know God. We need to know God. Both as a church and as individuals, we need to know God. And we do this by biblical literacy and prayer, studying the scriptures and prayer. And I'm very proud to be a part of a church, a member of a church who does this well as a congregation. We study the scriptures week in and week out and we pray a lot during our, ser- during our services. I remember actually the week of Brittany Schrode's baptism, um, a a mutual friend of ours was attending, and she was talking to me afterwards, and she said, man, y'all like pray during your services. Y'all like pray, pray. I was like, yeah, yeah, we do. (laughs) That's good. But it is not enough for us to simply pray during our services. We also need to be doing it as individuals. I can't stress this enough. If you're a member of this church, your personal prayer life affects the health of our church. Your personal devotional life affects the health of our church. And it is not simply something that affects the health of our church. It might be the most important thing that you do on any given day to meet your Savior and talk to him. Be sincere with him. Be open with him. So this morning, we're going to look at a text that will inform and encourage us in our prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 our focus is pretty narrow this morning. We're not going to do a full theology of prayer. We're simply going to look at how one of Paul's prayers informs our prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. In this text, we will see a mindset to enter prayer with, Paul's petitions, and Paul's purpose in prayer. So if you're taking notes, that's those are the three big points a mindset to enter prayer with, Paul's petitions, and Paul's purpose in prayer. And then we'll close by looking at some practical points to improve our prayer life. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. By the way, I'm reading from the NIV. I think that this translation is a little bit more clear than the ESV for this specific text, but ESV is still a very good translation. I'm not not digging it. (laughs) With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness, and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful prayer. The first thing that should stick out to us is at the start of verse 11, we get this phrase, with this in mind. This is Bible study 101, hermeneutics 101 for for the unlearned. Um, If you find a conjunction in your text that's referencing a former idea, you really wanna understand that former idea before moving into the next one. So the aphorism that we use is, what is the therefore, therefore? Like if you come across therefore in a text, what is that therefore, therefore? What is its purpose? With this case, with this in mind, Obviously, Paul's referring to what he had just written in 2 Thessalonians, which was our scripture reading this morning, specifically verses 3 through 10. He might be referring to 1 and 2 as well, but that's the salutation. 3 through 10, we get this framework that Paul enters his prayer with. He enters the prayer with two things in particular, gratitude and confidence. So we're going to look briefly at this text. We're not going to dive into every single detail of it, but we're going to look briefly to get a framework of what Paul is entering his prayer with. Verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul enters into his prayer with gratefulness, with gratitude. He is thankful. Now, I wouldn't be shocked if that's how a lot of us enter our prayers, by offering up thanks, by being grateful. But there might be some stark differences. I would hazard a guess that there are some stark differences between the ways that we're grateful and the ways that Paul is grateful here. I know that I open a lot of my prayers with, thanks for every blessing you've given me, God. Thank you for this food thank you for the wonderful weather today, thank you for my, my job, my car, all these material comforts, situational comforts that I enjoy. Thank you, God, for these things. And those aren't bad prayers. Those aren't bad prayers to pray. God provided those things, and I should be thankful for them. We should be thankful for them. But Paul's gratitude here is rooted in something different. Paul's gratitude is rooted in the grace of God shown in the Thessalonians. He says, thank God that your faith is growing, that your love is increasing, and that you are persevering through trials. All of these are evidences of God's grace in your life. All of these are evidences of God's grace in your life. Thank God that he is working through his grace in your life. That's a very stark difference. That's something that I don't thank God very often for. And it's something that I really should So thank God that he's he's moving with his grace in my life. Because what we're thankful for reveals our priorities. It might be the case that my priorities are askew, that I don't as highly value the grace of God as I might my personal comfort. So be grateful for the grace of God as you enter your prayers. Secondly, Paul is confident in his prayer verses 5 through 10. He's confident. Confident in what? Let's read verses 5 through 10. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels he will punish those who do not know the, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the day or from the glory of His might, on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed Him. This includes you, because you have believed our testimony to you. Paul exhibits confidence in God's faithfulness, that God's promises will come true. In this case, the vindication of the Thessalonians and the punishment of their oppressors, the punishment of all sinners, in fact, punishment of all sinners who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the confidence that Paul enters his prayer with, with an eye towards the end, looking towards the end of all things, knowing how it will come out, and boldly proclaiming in light of that, these petitions. Now, this sort of language about God's wrath, the eternal destruction of those who do not obey his gospel, grates against our 21st century sensibilities. And, you know, fair enough, it is harsh language, but if it doesn't comport with your idea of who God is, it's probably owing to the fact that you don't know your Bible well enough. It is very in character for God to protect his people, deliver his people, and punish their oppressors. Think back to Exodus, whenever he delivers his people out of the hands of the Pharaoh and punishes them with plagues. It has always been in God's character. He is just, he delivers his people, and he punishes their oppressors. The Bible is not shy about hell and wrath. It is not shy about hell and wrath, and we shouldn't be either, because it is a very serious reality that those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept by his free grace, his atoning work, they will not see heaven. They will experience eternal damnation. Now, as a point of apologetics, it is important to properly recognize what hell is. This week, I was reading Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson, which I highly recommend to you if, uh, if you want more information about Paul's prayers throughout the New Testament, encourage you to pick up a copy. I you might start reading it and be like, man, Mason plagiarized like his entire sermon from this book. And yeah, I did, you know, <laughs> like, and I'm not embarrassed about it. DA Carson is a is a wonderful scholar. <laughs> but in in this book, he has this quote about specifically this passage. It says, the final picture is not a pretty one. Some people think of hell as a place where sinners will be crying out for another chance, begging for the opportunity to repent with God somehow taking on a tough guy stance and declaring, sorry, you had your chance, too late. But the reality is infinitely more sobering. There is no evidence anywhere in the Bible that there is any repentance in hell. The biblical pictures suggest that evil and self-centeredness persists and persist, and so does God's judgment. Men and women wantonly refuse to acknowledge God as God. They will not confess his essential rightness. They will not own his just requirements. They will not give up their perpetual desire to be the center of the universe. They will not accept that they are guilty of rebellion. They will not accept forgiveness on the ground that God himself makes provision for sinners and the sacrifice of his own son. The way that C.S. Lewis puts this idea in his book, The Great Divorce, is that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Yes, very often in scripture, we will see people in hell mourning bemoaning their circumstances, weeping, gnashing of teeth, asking for drops of water, wanting to save their families. But it is never enough to cause them to repent. It is never enough for them to give up, give up their pride, humble themselves, and ask God for his forgiveness. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. And this expectancy characterizes Paul's prayer. The expectancy that Sinners will be punished, and that the saints will be vindicated. So these are the two things that Paul walks into his prayer with. This is the mindset that he enters his prayer with, confidence in God's promises and gratitude for God's grace. And so he continues with his prayer. Verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. This verse is actually the reason I wanted to preach this this text, because it's such a beautiful prayer. He opens by saying, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. What does that mean? man? Well, calling can be used a couple different ways in the New Testament. In the Gospels, it is often used as reference to an invitation. So think back to Matthew 22 and the parable of the wedding banquet. The wedding host calls his guests, and they refuse to come. So that's an invitation. But in Pauline Pauline literature, it is always effective. Calling always refers to your salvation. If you'll turn with me real quick to Romans 8.30, 8.29 and 30. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians, because we'll be flipping right back there. Romans 8, 29, and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified calling is always effective in Paul's literature which means that if Paul is praying for you to become worthy of your calling he's praying that you would become worthy of your salvation now Paul knows that salvation cannot be earned Paul knows this better than anyone he calls himself chief among sinners he was on the way to persecute and kill Christians on the Damascus road whenever he was saved he couldn't possibly have earned his salvation But to pray towards the end of earning your salvation is a good prayer. To be conformed more to the image of Christ, to be worthy of the name Christian, is a good prayer. Paul is praying that we become what we are not, that we become worthy of his his calling. What would it take you to feel worthy to call yourself a Christ follower? Well, man, I have to give up that grudge that I'm holding. I'd have to stop making so many coarse jokes. Or I'd have to really pay attention to what I'm watching. You know, second season of The Witcher just came out. That might not be a good thing for me to watch. I'm talking to myself mostly right now. Um, (laughs) You know, I might have to share the gospel with my friends at the expense of their opinion of me. I might have to dedicate more time to studying and praying. I might have to disciple someone. I might have to, you know, serve with a servant's heart, not complaining, not being bitter. What a beautiful thing it would be if the church felt confident to call itself Christians. The church felt worthy of the name of Christ. Not only does Paul pray that we would become worthy of our calling, but that by God's power, he might bring to fruition our every good desire and our every deed prompted by faith. That's so cool. <laughs> Pray that God would bring our every good desire to fruition and accomplish our works of faith. You have good desires, by the way. You might not think that you do, or you might not have ever considered that you don't have you know, good desires or bad desires, but you have desires that are good. Every person in this room desires something that is good. If you're single and you, you desire a spouse, then you desire something that's good. If you're single and you desire to stay single, then you desire something that's good. If you're married and you desire children, you desire something that's good. Or grandchildren, you desire something that's good. If you desire the salvation of your friends and family, you desire something that's good. And if you desire that your desires become more like Christ's, that is a very good desire. It is a good desire for you to desire that your desires become more good. (laughs) But you also have desires that are not good. You have desires that are evil. You have desires that are not only bad for others, but bad for yourself. And I hope this isn't news to anyone. I hope that you know this. So, who decides? Who decides what's a good desire? Who decides what's a bad desire? Well, thankfully, Paul is only praying that our good desires come to fruition. But God decides what is good and what is evil and we can discern his character through scripture. This is one of the reasons that biblical literacy is such an important part of knowing God. Because if we just study the Bible and we don't talk to God through prayer, then we know about him, but we don't know him. If we only pray, but we don't study scripture, then we're just speaking to some unknown. We don't know the person that we're speaking to well enough to be able to address him. God is good, and we can discern his character through scripture. I'd be willing to bet that your perception of what's good will be corrected before your desires are. So you will suffer through a time, maybe your whole life, (laughs) where you desire things that are evil and recognizing that they're evil. So not only does Paul pray that our every good desire would come to fruition, but also that our every deed prompted by faith would be accomplished in God's work work, and God's power. Now a deed prompted by faith is probably just anything that you wouldn't have done if you were not a Christian. So if you came to church on the day after Christmas day, then (laughs) that might be a deed prompted by faith. Good job, everyone. (laughs) Other things that might be deeds of faith, evangelism, discipleship, devotion, and most notably prayer this morning might be a deed of faith. These things can occur in their own right, but they must be accomplished through God's power. They must be accomplished through God's power. Psalm 127 verse 1 tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. We might be laboring in vain if the Lord does not accomplish these things in his power if if our good desires do not come to fruition through his power. If our deeds of faith, are not accomplished through his power. We may be laboring in vain. So let's pray to the end that these things would not be in vain, that God would use them in his sovereign plan. That God would use them in his good will to accomplish the will of his kingdom. So Paul enters his prayer with confidence in God's promises and gratitude for God's grace. And then he prays for worthiness, for goodness and for faithfulness in the lives of the Thessalonians. Notice how the things that he had in his mind as he went into the prayer inform what the prayer is about. That all of these things, the worthiness, the goodness, the faithfulness, that he prays for the Thessalonians are more fruits of God's grace in their life. So he was grateful for the fruit of God's grace in their lives. He prays for more of it and he's confident that they will come to fruition. That's why he can make such bold claims as, God, make them worthy of your calling. God, bring their good desires to fruition. God, accomplish their faith-filled deeds. With that in mind, Paul then moves to his purpose for our prayer. Verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays for the glorification of Christ. For the glorification of Christ. See, worthiness, goodness, and faithfulness are valuable ends, but they are not ultimate ones. They do not only serve in and of themselves. They serve to glorify our Savior. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those aren't ends, by the way. It's not plural. It's one end. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They are one and the same. We must enjoy God in order order to glorify him best. In order to glorify him best, we must enjoy him. Now we have to examine our motivations in our deeds of faith, though. Because the glory of God is not always at the forefront of our minds. Again, D.A. Carson from Praying with Paul says, lying at the heart of all sin is the desire to be the center, to be like God. So if we take on Christian service and think of such service as the vehicle that will make us central, we have paganized Christian service. We have domesticated Christian living and set it to servitude in a pagan cause. We have to examine our motivations. It cannot be to our own glory that we pray. It cannot be to our own glory that we go to church, that we serve in our church, that we give to charity. It cannot be in our own glory that we preach a sermon. It's been a very potent question for me to ask myself this week because I do have a desire that you would think of me as a good preacher, as someone who can exposit the word well. But I also have a very sincere desire that you would be encouraged and instructed by this prayer. And knowing which of those desires is stronger in me is not something I'm very good at. So we need to examine our motivations in prayer and in acts of faith. Not only does Paul pray for the glorification of Jesus, but he also prays for our glorification. It's a little note that you might have missed whenever we first read it. He says, Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. What does it mean for a Christian to be glorified? Well, it doesn't mean that we're stealing God's glory. That's not the intent. We're not stealing God's glory. We're not trying to steal God's glory. Isaiah 42.8 makes it very clear that God is zealous for his own glory, and he will not share it with another. But there's an appropriate sense in which the Christian can be glorified. If you remember back to Romans 8.30, which we just read, those who are called are justified, and those who are justified are glorified. Our glory comes in our perfection, and Christ makes us perfect by his work. We become fully human the most human we have ever been. And in that moment, we are glorified. But our glory is simply a reflection of his. Do you guys know that they have circle drawing competitions? They have competitions to see how well someone can draw a circle. So they go up to a chalkboard, have a piece of chalk in their hand, and they'll they'll like spin their whole shoulder and do, do as close of a perfect circle as they can and this is like a nationally like a national competition people travel to do this and don't get me wrong <laughs> it's pretty impressive it is a little strange though but if you think about it circles are commendable in their own right you know perfect circles are commendable in their own right but it is more the circle drawer that gets the glory for that right in the same way when we're made perfected it is not us that gets the glory it's simply a reflection of the one who made us that way Paul prays all of this according to the grace of our God. He grounds his prayer in the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this theme of the grace of God all throughout this section that what informs his prayer was gratitude for the grace of God. What he prayed for in the lives of the Thessalonians, was increased evidence of the grace of God in their lives. And he grounds the prayer itself in the grace of God. He knows that without the grace of God, we could not pray. We could not be made worthy. We could not desire goodness. We could not do deeds of faith. It is according to the grace of our God that we are able to do these things. And we must rest in that. So that's Paul's prayer. He enters it with a mindset of gratitude. Gratitude for God's grace and confidence in his promises. He prays prayers of petitions of worthiness and goodness and faithfulness for the Thessalonians. And he grounds it all in the glory of Christ according to his grace. I want this to inform and encourage our prayer life. That we would lift our eyes from the simple things that we often pray for. Pray for spiritual realities of God's grace. Pray for spiritual realities of God's glory in our lives. And to that end, as we land the plane, I want to talk about a few practical points to improving your prayer life. Now, whenever preachers give long lists of applications, I often get discouraged. I'm like, oh, man, I'm not doing any of this. There's so much to change, so much to fix. So I'm going to give you four things, but I only want you to pick one of them to work on. To start you can write all four down you can implement them at different times but just pick one to start with this week first plan to pray if you're not already doing this this should be the one that you incorporate plan to pray much prayer is not done because we do not plan for it so set a time pick you know the morning right when you wake up or at night right when you go to bed or on your commute to work or during your lunch hour pick a time and genuinely meet with your creator. And keep a list. We have some help this week uh, from from the bulletin. A list of things to pray about. Spiritual realities of God's grace. Keep a list of things you need to pray for. Your elders, your church members, your country, the government. Spiritual realities of God's grace in our lives. Plan to pray. Secondly, Focus in your prayer time. Do everything you can to impede mental drift. I am chief among sinners with regard to this. <laughs> and 30 seconds into my prayers, I'm always like, oh, yeah, that conversation I had with my friend last week, or, you know, the TV show that I watched last night. That was interesting. So focus in our prayer time. You can do this by vocalizing your prayers out loud, by speaking out loud. Or if you're in a quiet place, you can just mouth the words. Keep a prayer journal, perhaps. It will be a good gift to be able to see how God has answered your petitions throughout the months. Try doing a different physical activity. If you normally pray while you're sitting, try walking or kneeling. And pray through the scriptures. Pick a psalm or two or three and pray each line of it, making that truth your own as you speak it to the Lord. That's what it's there for. Third, pray with your household. Fathers and mothers, pray with your children. Fathers and mothers, pray with your children. Yes, the father is the spiritual head of the household, but kids need to see their mothers praying as well. Spouses, pray with each other. Roommates or singles, pray with your roommates. If your roommate's not saved, then pray for their salvation with a prayer partner and share the gospel with them. And then fourth, pray until you pray. This is a piece of Puritan advice. It has an element of Paul's admonishment to pray without ceasing, but it also includes the persistence that often characterizes prayers in the Bible. We see this all throughout the scriptures, actually, that God really values someone who is persistent in their prayer. You'll notice that multiple times Elisha and Elijah needed to pray several times before God would accomplish a miracle for them. Or we have parables in the New Testament where, you know, the woman goes and bothers the judge until he gives her justice. Or the neighbor goes over to his friend's house to ask for bread in the middle of the night. And the persistence is what's valuable there. It's almost like God is telling you, like, I want you to annoy me with how often you're praying. (laughs) So pray without ceasing and be persistent. This morning, we've looked at Paul's mindset of gratitude and confidence as he enters his prayer. We looked at petitions for worthiness, goodness, and deeds of faith. And we looked at Paul's aim to glorify God in his prayer. This is the church's basest need. We need to know God. If we as individuals and as a church can do this well, it will be a strong foundation for us to address every other need we might encounter. We need to know God first and foremost. So let's now approach him. In his throne room in prayer. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for a Sunday to study your word and to worship your name. We give you thanks for the sanctification that you've developed in our lives this year. God, we pray for grace upon grace, grace upon grace as you keep it into our lives, God. We pray for that your spirit will lead us in making us worthy of our calling. God, we pray that our good desires would be brought to fruition and our faith-prompted deeds would be accomplished in your power and by your grace. Not to our own ends, God, but to your glory. To your glory. God, we pray that this new year would be characterized by our prayers, by our devotions. We pray that this would all be done in your name. Amen.